the clock on the wall says time to get started. So let me just open with a brief uh, word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the time we have together tonight to uh, look into your word and look into your covenants. We ask that you bless this time, that you uh, open our hearts to your truth, and you separate the chaff, the chaff that may uh, be spoken, and just bless this class, and we do it in honor of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I apologize for last week if it came across a little dry, but hopefully uh, I'll redeem myself a little bit tonight. Uh, we're studying covenant and God's purpose for the world. And just a brief review of last week, we explained the nature of biblical theology and its presuppositions because this is a biblical theological uh, presentation of the covenants. We talked about what biblical theology is. Two of the uh, presuppositions that are most important is that the Bible tells a coherent, unified story, and Jesus Christ is the heart of that story. Also, the Bible is the story of God's relationship with mankind from creation to recreation. We looked at descriptions and definitions of the word covenant, which apply to both covenants among men as well as the divine covenants. And we pointed out that God has chosen to relate to man covenantally, whether in the garden or after the entrance of sin into the world. I wanted to give credit uh, where credit is due. This little book here by Tom Schreiner is the, was the, not only the inspiration for me to do this class, but it also provides the bulk of the material that I'll be presenting. $11.77 on Amazon. And uh, if, you, if you're not a note taker and, and want to buy a copy of this, you'll save yourself some trouble. Or check a copy out from the library, that's correct. We came up with, we looked at some definitions and some descriptions of covenant and came up with this as kind of a working definition of what a covenant is. A covenant is a chosen personal relationship with promises and obligations made between two parties under solemn oath. And this, this definition is general enough to where it also applies to covenants among men. But it also includes what we're going to be looking at as covenants with God. Uh, if you look at that definition, a covenant is a chosen relationship. In other words, it's elected. And the divine covenants, it's God who chooses to enter a covenant relationship with man. Uh, the, the covenant itself establishes a relationship. There's not always a pre-existing relationship when you make a covenant, but the covenant itself establishes it. And it's made between two parties under solemn oath. There's also a reciprocal nature. I think, uh, I think it was Graham Goldsworthy that said that the, uh, essential characteristic of a, uh, or the essence of a covenant is that it is reciprocal. And, and that might sound a little funny, but we readily admit that the divine covenants are initiated sovereignly by God. But once you're in a covenant relationship, there's a reciprocity that's associated with that. They're reciprocal in the very nature of a covenant. 
So in Scripture, the divine covenants are the means through which God reveals His kindness, goodness, and wisdom to mankind. And He sovereignly establishes the relationship with His creatures. The goal of all divine human covenants is summed up in the words found throughout the Bible, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. That's just a scattering of verses there. If you want to make note of some of those, but uh, that's a familiar phrase as you go through Scripture. Our focus from here forward will be on the major divine covenants, beginning with the Garden of Eden, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally the New Covenant. So we're going to begin tonight working through those covenants. Any questions? Comments? Don't hesitate to... Raise your hand if you have a question. I don't think you're going to find... Uh, I think there's going to be unconditional and conditional elements in every covenant. Right. And even though God will sovereignly bring about the purposes of His covenant, there's still that unconditional and conditional elements that you'll find in most of them. Thanks, Don. Treaty, yes. Right. Sometimes the word barit is, is actually translated treaty when it's among men and it's obvious that that's closer to the context of what's happening. Right. Using the word diatheke for a testament. Right. Exactly. We'll get into that. Hekim barit, which me, which is translated in our English Bibles uh, God, when God says He establishes a covenant, that's usually using the term Hakim Barit. When He says make a covenant, when it's translated God made a covenant, it's usually translating Karat Barit, which is dramatically demonstrated with Abraham, meaning to cut a covenant where animals are actually slaughtered as part of the covenant ceremony. Uh, that was just to distinguish between what we see in our English translations. When you see Translated establish a covenant, covenant, it's usually translated in that Hakim Barit. When it says God made a covenant, it's usually translated Karat Barit, which is to cut a covenant. I'm not sure it's necessary to, you know, make fine distinctions there, but, uh, we did go over that last week, so thanks. So the, cre- uh, the covenant of creation or uh, some, including myself, usually refer to it as the Adamic Covenant. Is what we're going to get into now. Now, this first covenant is, is somewhat controversial. We, we mentioned this last week. Uh, there's questions among scholars as to whether or not there was a covenant with, with Adam or a covenant with creation, and that's debated. But there's two primary reasons why that's a question. The first is, and this may be what you're getting at, uh, Jim, uh, the word covenant is not used in the first three chapters of Genesis. In fact, the word covenant doesn't actually show up until you get to Noah. So that's used as an argument to say, well, whatever was happening in uh, Genesis 1 through 3 with Adam and the garden, uh, that was not strictly a covenant. But, and that's why they, some say that. The second reason is they would point out that, well, Adam and Eve were in a unique situation at creation 
that was this was before the fall. They're, they they are were created upright and perfect, so to speak. So it's, it's they're not like man was after the fall, and all of the other covenants took place after the fall. So is it really legitimate to call it a covenant? This class, however, will presume an Adamic covenant, and I hope to explain why. We're going to call it, instead of the Adamic covenant, uh, Tom Schreiner, Dr. Schreiner, calls it a covenant of creation, and we'll use that term because it it really does fit with an overarching view of redemptive history. It, it enables us to see how this covenant in the garden integrates with the other divine covenants that we're going to look at. In fact, I would suggest that uh, if you don't view what happened in the garden as covenantal, then you, ha- you end up with a truncated view of the covenants because you've cut off the first one and uh, and you and you lose some of the connection that 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 I'm going to try and emphasize and show how they all integrate together, and it's necessary from that aspect uh, to look at the garden and creation as a covenant. For one thing, God inaugurated history with creation, and He will consummate it with the new creation. The original creation anticipates and points forward to the new creation. God inaugurated history with creation. The cre- God's creation was very good. God will consummate history with the new creation. Right? And He does that by way of covenant, which is what this class is trying to illustrate. God takes us from the original creation to the new creations in the eschaton. Now, as far as the covenant of creation, God's partner in this covenant, remembering our uh, definition, God's partner in this creation covenant was Adam, or Adam and Eve, who represent the pinnacle of creation. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. You recall that from the first few chapters. In Ecclesiastes, it says God created man upright. Adam was created upright, and he was pronounced very good. Adam and Eve, as God's vice regents, were to exercise dominion or rule over the earth, as stated in Genesis 1.28. They were to work and keep the garden on God's behalf, Genesis 2.15. They were to exercise their rule as God's children, as those in fellowship with God. I'm going to take a little excursus here and talk about God's image, because we just said they were created in God's image. And scholars have long discussed what it means to be created in God's image and likeness, which are the words that the scripture uses. Most agree that the Imago Dei, that's the Latin phrase for image of God that you'll see in the literature if you're reading about it, is both ontological and functional. Now when I say ontological, that sounds like a big word. We got into that in the Trinity class, if any of you attended that. 
but the ontological aspect has to do with our being. What is it about our being that is in the image and likeness of God? But it is also the image of God is has a functional aspect illustrated by our purpose or for what did God create us in his image. Now the emphasis in Genesis is on the call for Adam and Eve to rule the world as those made in God's image. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you turn to Genesis 1.26, one of our reference books uh, by uh, Wellam and Gentry translated, say that it is properly translated, let us make man so that he, so that they may rule. And that's how the Net Bible, for example, translates it. What's the whole verse there? Let us make man in our image. And let them. Some translate it. Let, let them, Wellam and Gentry say, it could just as easily be translated, so that they may rule. In other words, emphasizing the purpose that they were made in God's image. Now, ruling is not the essence of the divine image, per se, but rather the purpose is a result uh, of being created in God's image. Purpose is seen in the call to be fruitful, to fill, subdue, have dominion. Those are those were that's why God created man, mankind, Adam and Eve, was to do these things. That was their purpose, and and uh, Wellam and Gentry are saying. That's part of the image of God. We are created the way we are. Not only in our being do we possess the image of God, but in our purpose we possess the image of God in this sense. God made Adam and Eve in his image so they could and would govern the world on his behalf. Now there's also a close relationship between image and sonship. If you'll uh, uh, remember... When we get to Genesis 5-3, we see the birth of Seth. And Seth is said to be born in the image and likeness of Adam. The very same words. So just as Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God, Seth was born in the image and likeness of Adam and Eve. Or of Adam. And even though we haven't talked about the fall yet, we're going to have a question at the end of this slide. Adam is also called the Son of God, and you'll see that at the end of uh, Luke's uh, listing of Jesus' genealogy in chapter 3, verse 38 of Luke. Sons bring glory to their parents by living righteous and beautiful lives. So just like Seth was born in the image and likeness of Adam, he was to bring glory to his parents by the way he lived. Adam and Eve, created in God's image and likeness, were to live beautiful and righteous lives as God's children. Adam and Eve would bring glory to God by living as his children in accordance with his character. Now, Scripture indicates 
that man still retains the image of God. There, there could be a question that after the fall, after man was uh, sunk into sin, does he still retain the image of God? And we do. So let's look at a couple of passages just re- real quickly there. The first one is uh, Genesis 9-6. And this is when we're dealing with, with uh, Noah. And verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God has made, God made man in his own image. So this is with Noah. After the fall, after the flood, man still possesses God's image. Flip quickly back to uh, James. This is with James talking about taming the tongue in chapter 3. And if you look at verse 9, it says, with the tongue, he's talking. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it our tongue. We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So even now, we still retain God's image and likeness. We might say that it is no longer uh, as it was at the beginning. It's been defaced or damaged by sin. Yet we still have that image. We no longer have a personal communion. As fallen creatures, we no longer have personal communion or relationship with God, but we still have, we are still made in His image and likeness. Scripture speaks of the need for its renewal, for example. There's a verse, He predestined, Romans 8.29, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. So in our fallen state, we still retain His image, but it is defaced. And it needs to be conformed to what its original intent was. And that will happen in the eschaton. It happens partially through this life. But ultimately at the consummation, we will be back to the image that God intended us to be. Only those who belong to the last Adam are restored to the purpose for which human beings were created. 1 Corinthians 15:45 and 47 refers to Christ as the last Adam and the second man. And those who are in Christ are the ones who will be restored to the purpose for which human beings were originally created. Now back to the uh, garden and the uh, covenant of creation. The garden was created by God and then Adam was put in the garden. In other words, Adam wasn't created in the garden. Adam was created out of the dirt. And then God created the garden. And he put Adam in it. Eden is not the garden. Eden is the place where the garden was situated. The garden was a specific place. That God created in which he put Adam and Eve to have fellowship and communion with himself. It was a special place of God's presence. We see from Genesis 3.8 that there was a continual 
walking and communing with God that Adam and Eve had in the garden. And and in this sense, the garden foreshadows the later tabernacle and temple. That's why uh, guys like uh, Greg Beale have written books on how we look at the garden and how it prefigures the temple and how it was the first temple. It was the first place where God and man commune and walk together and talk together. If you'll remember the uh, curtain in the tabernacle later in Israel's history, the curtain in the tabernacle was embroidered with cherubim. Why was that? Because cherubim were put to guard the garden after Adam and Eve were, after their expulsion, after their exile from the garden, cherubim were put there to guard the garden so that Adam and Eve couldn't go back in. And that's why they were embroidered on the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle. It's, it's reminiscent of the garden. It's re- the Holy of Holies was initially the garden. That's where God communed with man face to face, so to speak. And so when they built the tabernacle, they embroidered cherubim on the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies as a reminder that this is the way to the Holy of Holies and there's only one way to get there and that was prescribed in the law. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies just like Adam could not go back into the garden. Anyway, as I mentioned before, the word covenant does not appear in Genesis 1 through 3, but the word covenant does not have to be present for a covenant to exist. And I'll show this a couple of ways. When we read about the covenant with David, it's introduced in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it is again talked about in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. This is a Davidic covenant. The word covenant is not used. So to say that there can't be a covenant in the garden because the word covenant is not there just doesn't hold up because it wasn't there when the covenant of David was made, with David was made. Now we see later in the scriptures, for example, specifically two or three places in Psalm 89 where the the deal with David was called a covenant. Like man, they transgressed the covenant. But like man, they transgressed the covenant has the same meaning as like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Where would that have been? At creation, in the fall, they transgressed the covenant. So he was referring to the way the Israelites are returning from him, seeking their own autonomy and breaking the covenant with God. He's saying it's just like mankind who transgressed the covenant. Or just like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, there's one more passage I want to look at, and that's in Jeremiah, uh, verse 33. I mean, chapter 33, verses 25 and 26. This is an interesting passage. The Lord's talking to them about uh, 
how how they can be sure that he's going to hold to his covenant with Israel. He says, thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of the heavens and earth, then I will reject offspring of Jacob and David. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm more likely to break my covenant with the day and night than I am to break my covenant with David, Jacob and David. So there, we're not, we, we don't see it specifically referring to Adam. What we see is God is referring to the fact that in creating, he committed himself and it was a covenantal situation. That's why I think Tom uh, Schreiner prefers to call it covenant creation because there are elements that say it was not only a covenant with Adam, it was a covenant with the whole creation, the whole created order. Okay, now now there's something else to be uh, to be said here, and that is the parallel between Adam and Christ that we are told about in familiar passages such as Romans 5:18 and 19, 1 Corinthians 15:21 and 22. Why might that be why might that be a proof that there was a covenant with Adam? Anybody want to venture a guess? If somebody has Romans 5 verses 18-19, would you read it please? I don't have it open just to refresh our memories. So there's a parallel between Adam and Christ. It's a, it's a parallel of opposites, but here's what I'm getting at. The word covenant in uh, Latin is foetus. And that's where we get the word federal. And so when we talk about covenant, we're talking about a federal relationship. We have a federal government. What does that federal what does federal government mean? Representative. Representative. And in Romans five and also in first in Corinthians, which I which I quoted fifteen, we are shown that as Adam was our representative federal covenant head so Jesus Christ is our representative federal covenant head by the one we fell into sin and from that all men are born sinners we're subject to death we're spiritually dead yet by the second Adam by the last Adam, the second man, we have redemption, where Jesus Christ has undone what happened with Adam. And so the point of those comparisons or, or contrasts that Paul makes, this is what's behind it. This is why we can say there was a covenant with Adam. Why? Because he's our covenant head. He's our federal head. He's our representative. We fell in him. That can only happen. This is true. And conversely, 
it can only happen with Christ if this is true. So just to reiterate, Christ is the covenant head of his people, the church, the elect, the redeemed, those who are in Christ. Adam is the covenant head of his people, mankind, who fell. We fell in him. So as far as evidence for a covenant, the constituent elements of a covenant were present. There were two parties involved, God and Adam and Eve, as well as God and creation. God, as a covenant Lord, gave stipulations and requirements. It was conditioned on Adam's obedience. He disobeyed and we fell into sin. There were cursings and blessings given. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Hence, Tom Schreiner and others, including myself, feel like it's valid to see a covenant with Adam and creation. And really, the uh, the proof of the pudding, we will see in how the creation covenant links to the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, which we will get to probably next week. The covenantal requirement was clearly set forth, and the penalty for violation was clearly set forth. Well, re- no, no, you're you're getting it right, and the reason I say and creation is because it was obvious from from the Jeremiah text that God made a covenant with the day and the night, the seasons, and so. Uh, as far as our federal representative head, that's Adam. But the, the point of the, of the Jeremiah passage, I think, is to point out that when God created, he committed himself covenantally to that creation. And therefore, we're going to see how that results in a new, new creation, recreation, the new heavens and the new earth. Right, the, gra- the earth groans. Because it's suffering. You said that he right. And, and uh, I think uh, it has something to do with the fact that uh, when we talked about the purpose of creating mankind, we, we listed those things that God commanded them to do. Fulfill, have dominion, rule, reflect my character in the earth. And, and, and it's just, a, it's just a way of saying, and maybe I'm not saying it exactly right, but the fact that God had a view toward creation as a whole, even though Adam himself is our representative head as far as mankind. Right. Exactly. Right. And we, we said earlier that Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of creation, and they were to act as God's vice regents on the earth. So all of, all of uh, creation, like you're saying, comes to a head with Adam and Eve. Right. Right. The blood of Abel speaks from the ground. Exactly. So the, the requirement was set out. Don't eat that tree. The penalty was clearly set forth. If Adam and Eve obeyed, they would continue to enjoy life and the tree of life. With obedience, you know, some people ask, well, what would have happened if they'd obeyed? Well, my first answer is, they didn't. 
So the point of the narrative is not to tell you what would have happened if they had obeyed because they didn't. So I'm going to tell you what happened because they disobeyed. <laughs> but, you know, scholars talk about it. We assume that God would have eventually confirmed them in righteousness, but that's speculative. It's not stated in the text. So, you know, we can we can talk about it, but it doesn't really matter much because that's not the point of the narrative. Since they disobeyed, the curse of the covenant came upon them. You shall surely die. Now, I just want to say a couple of words, and that is the sin was not eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Sin was conceived in the heart, and the result of that sin in the heart was eating of the tree. I I don't know where that came from in him, in them. Yes, but I don't think the temptation was so much to eat of the tree. It was to question God and to act autonomously. And so he said, well, I'll figure this out myself. And so man chose to act autonomously. And by doing that, he sided with Satan. So now we look specifically at the fall. They lost their fellowship and spiritual communion with God. They were exiled from the garden, away from the presence of God, and away from the tree of life. The effects of breaking the covenant were not limited to Adam and Eve. They had a universal impact on mankind and, as we've talked about, creation. In Adam, all sinned. We are born sinners, and we are born spiritually separated from God. So now we want to look at the promise. The creation covenant with Adam was made prior to the fall. So specifically, the promise we're going to be talking about was not part of the covenant with Adam and creation. The promise comes after that. And that comes from Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And this is the key verse that uh, we're going to focus on where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But then it says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So let's look at that passage. Beginning in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, after he's questioned Adam and Eve, they've, They've seen that they were naked. They covered themselves with fig leaves sewn together or whatever. And they admit what what happened. So here the Lord God said to the serpent. So he's addressing the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then here's the promise part. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then he goes on to talk to the woman and says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, etc. 
But I want to point out that the only person in this passage is cursed is Satan. Because he says, cursed are you. But he never says, cursed are you, Adam, or cursed are you, Eve. 3.14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all all of the creatures. Okay, but the point I want to make is, in that, in those three, four verses, whatever it is, he didn't curse Adam. He didn't curse Eve. What he did was, he, he demonstrated to them this principle. Sin brings misery. Right. The promise is, you will crush his heel and he will crush your head. Well, you're not going to win that argument with Leah either. I'm talking about the Proto-Evangelium. It's called the First Gospel. Right. I know. And this is Tom Schreiner's view. This is the view of of uh, every well-known scholar I know. Okay. Promise is called the first gospel. God promised ultimate victory over the seed of the serpent, who is Satan, we're told specifically in Revelation 22, through the seed of the woman. This is a promise of a future redeemer. Although with the promise, God also put enmity between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And Don's right because that is significant. But there is victory. And the victory is found in Romans 16, verse 19, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, being the church. When the seed of the woman ultimately Jesus Christ crushes the head of Satan. He's doing it through the church. The church crushes the head of Satan. Romans 16.20 is the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15. But here's a question. Who do you suppose comprises the seed of the woman? And who do you suppose comprise the seed of the serpent? Anyone? I would say that's that's true in the ultimate sense, but the seed of the woman, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is a conflict that God established among human beings. Uh, there was no enmity after the fall. Why? Because Adam and Eve sided with Satan. They're on the same page. There's no enmity there. But when God says, I'm going to establish enmity between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman, 
there is what I think Don was pointing at. From here on out, there's going to be enmity among human beings between those who have sided with Satan and those who are following God based on what they know. I don't want to go further than that, but I'm just saying some people say that the seed of the woman is all mankind. Well, that's not true. If we look at 1 John 3.12, it says, We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. And in John 8.44, when he's talking to the antagonistic Judeans, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and you and your will is to do your father's desires. There, folks, is the seed of the serpent. I actually, I think, I don't want to press this, I think you find in the promise of Genesis 3.15 and the enmity, I think there's a case for limited atonement that you can start right there and develop. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't want to go too far with what I just said. I, I just want to say that you know the the New Testament says he transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The seed of the serpent is in the domain of darkness, and we just read Romans sixteen twenty, which uh, says that Jesus Christ through the church, will crush the head of the serpent. Now, although Adam and Eve were now spiritually separated from God, he graciously delayed their physical death. The disobedience of Adam and Eve was not the end of the story. God had not given up on them. In fact, he sent them forth clothed in animal skins. Now, the narrative in Genesis doesn't add anything to that, but it seems to me it's certainly a precursor of a foreshadowing of the fact that a sacrifice is required to cover sin, and it doesn't tell us how God, what God did to get those skins, but he covered them with the animal skins, I think, I think, uh, to protect them physically, they're going out into a, a, a cursed world. <laughs> but he provided for them in that sense. Right. Right. I think the, the, difference, the difference was not so much the gifts as it was the heart, issue of the heart. But uh, in that passage, he cursed the ground. It wasn't going to be easy to toil the ground and bring forth vegetation and crops. Sin brings misery. It's not going to be easy in childbirth. In fact, when he says to the woman, you will desire your husband, that's a negative. That's not a positive. The enmity is going to extend even to the, into the marriage relationship. She desires to rule over the husband is what that passage is talking about. Not not desire him romantically. She desires to rule over him. 
And it's just like that passage you quoted. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to devour you. Same word desire there. It's a negative kind of thing. But anyway, the point is, he cursed, he cursed the serpent. That's my way of looking at it. But he told Adam and Eve, things ain't going to be easy anymore. Because you're fallen creatures and you have sided with Satan. So sin brings misery. That's a universal uh, proverb for you there. Sin, sin brings misery. How the story plays out in Scripture is seen through the continuing theme of covenant, which we're going to look at. In conclusion, I think we have good reason for seeing a covenant at creation. Adam and Eve were made in God's image to rule the world on His behalf. They were to display His righteousness, goodness, and holiness in the way they lived. Uh, having dominion over the earth is not to be seen as a negative because the dominion they were to have is a caretaking, stewardship dominion. Not, not have dominion in the, you know, in the negative sense about how evil king has dominion over his subjects. They were to have dominion in a godly sense. The fall corrupted mankind and, as has been pointed out, creation. Yet a Redeemer was promised. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the last Adam who grants righteousness and life to his people. So here we are. We had a very good creation. Then all hell broke loose. We have the fall, but in the midst of the ramifications of that fall, we have a promise. And that promise is the seed of the woman, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. So I was trying to come up with a way to uh, display that schematically so that I could kind of map our progress through the class. And I, I came up with this. And the reason I came up with it is from reading the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Chapter 7. And these are the words of that uh, Chapter 7 and uh, that I'm fixing to read to you. And that's what gave me the idea for this graphic. It says, This covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by further steps, until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. So, we have the original creation, the Adamic covenant, or the covenant with creation, the fall, we hit the bottom, there is a promise. And that promise was uh, the promise of God's grace, which was initially revealed to Adam by way of that promise. And then by further steps, we see further revelation of God's grace until it reaches its full establishment and consummation and establishment in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to use that graphic as we go through the next couple of weeks. So here we are today. We hit the bottom, but we've been given a promise. Next week, we will begin with the Noahic Covenant, and hopefully get through that all in one week. So uh, I appreciate your attention. I appreciate all the comments. Jim, would you mind closing us in a quick word of prayer? Amen. Amen.